Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Rising Giants with your hosts, Max and Dom, where we talk with the leading entrepreneurs, investors, and creatives in Cambodia's vibrant startup scene to learn what it means to be a rising giant. In this episode, we have the pleasure of speaking with Alan Tan, who recently released one of the most up-to-date and fascinating guidebooks on how to understand Cambodia in the 2020s as a foreign entrepreneur, investor, or manager, titled Essential Cambodia. Alan is an executive leader in Cambodia with deep experience setting up new companies, organizations, and initiatives such as WorldBridge, Octane, Bluebell, and Mekong Future Initiative, and he specializes in bringing concepts from ideas through startup and operational sustainability, as well as helps businesses find core value and build strong operational capabilities. Alan also served as the president, chairman of the board of the American Chamber of Commerce in Cambodia from 2018 to 2020. We're really excited about this episode, and we hope that you enjoy this conversation with Alan. Alan, thank you so much for joining us on Rising Giants today. We are so excited to have you on and to discuss your journey, your background, and especially your book, Essential Cambodia, giving an introductory and a better understanding of investment and those that are wanting to join the Cambodian ecosystem. Just to kick things off, if you could talk to us a little bit about how you got to where you are today and maybe where your passion for entrepreneurship and investment began. Yeah, so I took an unconventional path, I would say, into business in that, you know, I started off in the Army, actually. So I was in the U.S. Army for almost eight years. There I did a couple of things. I was ground infantry, and then I was also in bomb disposal. I was in Iraq. I was in Afghanistan. But when I got out, you know, I wanted to do work in the humanitarian space, kind of use those skills in bomb disposal to do something. So I ended up here in Cambodia completely by chance, despite the fact that I'm Cambodian, right? My father is Cambodian, right? And it just happened to be where there are a lot of landmines and remnants from the war period. And so I ended up out here, but I ended up managing the business operations of an American NGO out here because I have a master's and a, bat- and a bachelor's in business-related fields, right? So I managed that side. And when I was doing that, you know, our work was primarily around technology for that space. So we were creating new technologies that were used to destroy these explosive remnants of war. I ran a product development lab with engineers and we built stuff and we built stuff and we shipped it around the world. And so that was a kind of social entrepreneurship, you could say. And from that, I saw how many opportunities there were also just around me in Cambodia to do business and to do things that were meaningful, I think, to, to me personally as projects that were fun and, and exciting to try, but also that business was, you know, the thing that was providing jobs and building the economy here in Cambodia. I saw that during the boom period, because I've been here since 2010, and I really wanted to be a part of that entrepreneurship space as well. And that's, and that's where I put my feet in with some of my own businesses. And that grew from there into work with the American Chamber of Commerce and, and, and the work I do today. Thank you. And what were some of the early businesses that you created? Could you talk us through some of those? Right. So first I started with entrepreneurship within my organization, right? And I think that's something that young professionals who are already working for organizations can look to do if your organization is supportive, which many, many are. I think if if you can give them the right value proposition to be the entrepreneur within your organization that's starting new programs, right? So I did that for a couple of programs that we have. One was called the Advanced Ordnance Training Materials. Basically, we were using 3D printing technology, the cheap 3D printing that just entered the market, FDM printing. This was early on, right? And we're using it to create a new kind of training aids for explosive ordnance disposal. Actually, I have one behind me. On my desk, I didn't plan to show you guys this. Awesome, yeah, please. And so these were 3D printed, and this this basically shows you how this thing works, and it's used in training. It was the first time that that was possible, and we did it with 3D printing because 3D printing had just become cheap, so it was the first time it was possible to manufacture something like that. So anyway, this program got big, and we ended up winning our CES Innovation Award, actually, the Consumer Electronics Show in Vegas. If you're a tech guy, you probably know that's one of the biggest tech shows in in the world and that awards also here because because that's work I, I appreciate right from from my journey and so 
we won that for a product that was designed here in Cambodia and manufactured here in Cambodia. I don't think a lot of people know that International Tech Award has been by a company working in Cambodia in a, in a physical product, right? I know we have for, for fintech and things, but so, and that's really what, what kick-started me thinking about, you know, what kind of businesses I could do. And, and we ended up starting a robotics company after that, which we're still working on today. And that's, that's growing. And that's really exciting. And I also started taco shops. Right? So, you know, people say you start businesses often from, you know, things that you have in your own experience that are lacking. Right. And here in Cambodia, I was really missing tacos, you know, from, from Southern California, among other places in the U S and, and I really miss tacos, fast food tacos. So I started a taco chain. And from that, I realized you couldn't get tor corn tortillas in Southeast Asia easily. Right. So then I started a company to make corn tortillas and corn tortilla products. To supply the taco shop, which now supplies pretty much every Mexican restaurant in Phnom Penh. So, so those things just happened out of need and you know a desire just to do stuff and, and have fun doing stuff and building things. I think that the theme in all of that would be building stuff. I really like to build things, and that's and that's what I do in my day job also. Yeah, and especially having that early success as well, it, it just has this momentum that continues to follow. And when you have this drive mixed with that momentum, it just is an unstoppable force in some ways. And so kind of moving on a little bit to, to your experience serving as president of AmCham in Cambodia, can you talk to us a little bit about, about how you decided to run for the position and kind of what your experience was like all around when you were in office there? Yeah, AmCham was a really interesting period for, for me. I never considered joining the board. And then after I was on the board, I never considered running for president. I was actually asked to do that by the outgoing president, Brett Scaroni. And those of you who have been in Phnom Penh a long time know Brett was a, a larger-than-life character that was out here. He did a lot for America, did a lot for Cambodia and, and in the early days, right, and getting those relations. And he's the guy who set up AmCham and IBC, another one of the business chambers out here. Anyway, he asked me to run for the board and then I was on the board for a while. And I participated in our education committee and did those things. And then people thought I should run for president. So I did and, and won that. And that was a new experience for me because I had not taken that kind of leadership position on a community board before. It was actually the first, the first one that I had, had, had put myself out there for that. And it was, it was pretty incredible because I got a chance to learn from so many business people here in Phnom Penh doing things. You know, as president of AmCham, you get, you get this great look behind the curtain because people come to you and speak to you about their issues and their business. You get a chance to interact with U.S. government, trade agency, and the U.S. embassy, economic staff who are doing things to promote U.S. business and work on issues that are important to U.S. business. So it really expands expanded my horizons to understand a lot more of the challenges of American businesses specifically, but more generally foreign businesses working in Cambodia and touching a lot of the different entrepreneurs in that space and getting their perspectives about how, how they started their business, what their challenges were and what's important to them. Maybe a little bit more on the, on the interpersonal side of it, but when you, stepped up into that role was there any sense or feeling of of maybe an imposter syndrome at all or did you feel like at that time you were ready to take it on and 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 you know lead kind of lead the charge and be able to be supportive to you know all those different facets of the organization yeah you know honestly i didn't understand why brett asked me to do that at first or why they would elect me into that position i didn't i didn't really understand why i would be the best candidate because i was looking at it from the perspective of you know who's the bigger person you know who's who runs the biggest company and i had kind of that perspective but then i realized that the real function that i was serving there and the the skills that i had to bring to that were the skills of, of building the consensus and building that team and helping to form a team there at AmCham that could you to do good work and expand the work that we were doing. So I realized that those are the skills that I have because those same skills that I used to build things are the skills that I brought to the table there. And then I came into it and felt more, 
more comfortable in that position. But you know, the truth of the, the, the matter is, is um, I don't particularly like, you know, or seek having a lot of power, right? I think power for power's sake is not really, is, is not interesting to me personally, at least. So it took some time for me to be comfortable, I guess, in that space and, and find the right way to, to deal with it. Right, on a personal level. But in the end, I think it, it helped me to, to gain some, some confidence in terms of leading a board. I think that that was a really good experience for me. And I would, I would recommend to anybody who has the opportunity to be participating in that kind of a leadership to seriously consider it as a good option as long as, as, long as they have the time. Because that was the other thing with that, I'd be honest, is the time took away more time than I thought it would. <laughs> To, to deal with that. It's always funny how whenever you get into those positions and or if you take on new initiatives or projects, it always takes a lot more focus and a lot more energy than maybe originally you had allocated before. How did your experience both as a Cambodian and an American lead you to study the unique business environment in Cambodia, resulting in the book of Essential Cambodia that you wrote? So I... I think I had my own journey, right? I mean, I was born and raised in the, in the United States. So when I came to Cambodia, I had an incredible learning curve, just like many foreign people coming here, or all foreign people, I would say, coming to Cambodia. And I also had a few extra references in that, in that I, I know my father, I have a relationship with my father, and, and I understand him to some extent, as much as we can understand our parents. So I have that reference point as well. And I think, you know, putting those things together, things when I, when I would come to a new understanding about how something worked, for example, it, it would click a little bit like, ah, that's why, you know, he says this, or that's why he's this way. And not everything could be referenced back to him, but certainly I think having that cultural background with my family did help me to put together some of the puzzle pieces as I was learning. And then those discussions, again, that I was having with other entrepreneurs, those were filling in places along the way also. And so I think, you know, that mixed background and my time at AmCham are what, what made me think that I should put down these ideas in this book. So that's what, what led me to the book, as well as seeing the same mistakes over and over again. You, if you're in Cambodia long enough or probably Sure, anywhere long enough, you see the same cycles happening. And I would see those, those same cycles happen with foreign entrepreneurs or managers, you know, that could be or workers who come to Cambodia. And I see them go through this, this, this cycle of frustration and, and, and finding their way. And, and some never, never fully accept the situation, even when they're here a very long time. And so you, you see these things and you think, maybe we could help a few newcomers if we put down some of these lessons and that's and that's where the book came from yeah how long did it take to to write the book and yeah when was when was it released and how what's been the reception so far yeah so writing the book didn't take very long actually it took i think about six months because you you know you have all in your brain and it all comes out right it all comes out when as soon as you start writing you, you have all this these thoughts and they and they really start to come out. And the, the the parts that took some time are research. The book does have a lot of research. I had a research assistant, and we did planned methodical kind of research on some of the topics, which are only covered normally in Cambodian language. So like some of the reports from the economic reports from the provinces and things, those were transcribed. So that took time. I also did interviews, some structured interviews with entrepreneurs and that also took time but yeah about six months to actually write this manuscript but then i also underestimated how long it takes to go through this editing the peer kind of review process where i sent out the books because when you send somebody a book and say hey would you read this for me and give me comments you can't you can't you know push them to get it back to you fast although most of them got it back in good time of course it it, it does take time and then the copy editing right i mean you have copy editing and print layout and then it gets sent to a publisher all that stuff took a year and a half. <laughs> so the total project's like a year, excuse me, two years, right? But writing the book was only six months and I underestimated that whole process. And it also, you know, getting on all the marketplaces, like you can buy the book on Amazon, you can buy it on Kindle. You know, you don't, you don't just upload 
a book and it gets put on Kindle. You know, it has to have a, a different or it should have a different print layout, right? So all, all these kinds of things took a lot of time. Hey, the book came out last year and it's been doing pretty well, actually. It's been selling mostly through the airport bookstore and through the local bookstore here. And then it does continue to sell on Amazon. I would say book sales is one or two a day, something like that, which for me on a, on a book that's very specialized, very niche like this, meets my expectations, certainly. I thought that would be about where we're at and I'm happy we're, we're at that place. Great. And before we dive into kind of the, some of the topics in the book, can you give the audience just a quick, quick overview of what the, what the book looks to accomplish? So this is a book for practitioners. This is meant to be a field manual, if you will, something for you to reference. You know, you might read it from front to back, but you might not. You might just cherry pick those sections that are interesting for you. It's for anybody who's coming to Cambodia to do business or to work or to work with Cambodian companies or in any way operate within the Cambodian system. So I think that it's useful as a reference guide. I think it can also be interesting for people who just want to expand their knowledge of how things work in Cambodia. Maybe they're coming on vacation and they want to know a little bit too, but it's really a business practitioner's book. It's not a legal guide. There's excellent legal guides out there. I'll plug one for Soxipana because he has a great business book, The Legal Guide to Doing Business in Cambodia. That's spot on. Mine is not a legal reference, but but I, it's it's meant to be a cultural guide to doing to doing business. Yeah. Okay, understood. And the first few chapters, you talk a lot about setting the stage for the economic situation in Cambodia, and as we've seen this development and new investment from many different partners. How would you say some of this growth has changed since since you've written the book? Where would you put the current state of the Cambodian economy today? What's interesting is that, you know, despite global inflation and this talk of recession, that our exports are up in Cambodia. We've seen a cooling of the property market, but our factory exports to Europe and the U.S. have actually increased this year, which, is, which has been interesting. I think the Cambodian economy is still very interesting for a few reasons. I think that the fundamentals here of our demographics haven't changed, so we still have a very young population. I, I think we also have a lot of excellent agricultural land. So that's a that's a huge natural resource where we don't have, you know, a lot of oil, we don't have a lot of minerals that we know of yet. We we do have this this incredible rich land that grows really great high quality produce, you know, the best cashews I've ever had in my life, the best rice in the world, according to the rice competitions that happened one five times. So so we can we can produce this incredible products for the world. And we have this great young dynamic population. And one of the intangibles that I think people find when they come to Cambodia is the energy level is just incredible. And the positivity is also incredible. Just from anyone you meet, just walking down the street or at your hotel, and it's just, it's just a, a positive experience generally for people coming to Cambodia, how warm and how energetic our, our market is. And that, and that, in the last two years since I wrote the book, that hasn't, that hasn't declined. Despite the pressures of COVID and things like that, you still find just this vibrance here that, that can be electrifying if you're an entrepreneur because you'll see opportunities everywhere and you'll see, you'll see enthusiastic people to speak to. So. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I, I had that impression when, when I first got here, just that, you know, that feeling of positivity and I don't know, positivity, passion, proactiveness of, of people. It's really, it's really refreshing in comparison to many other aspects, many other places in the world that are sometimes a little bit caught in, you know, complaining, negativity, etc. So yeah, no, it's, it's a really, I think that's something that a lot of people realize. And just talking about like who the, the book is targeted to, what types of foreign entrepreneurs, investors, and managers are you seeing coming in to Cambodia today? How has that sort of mix of people changed as time has gone on? Yeah. You know, now we're seeing a lot more professionals coming in. And, I, and when I say professionals, I mean people who have been doing their job in other places at a high level or at, at a similar level to what they're coming into Cambodia to do. So CEOs of banks who were CEOs of banks in other markets and things like that. So 
the reason for that is I think now local companies or companies operating in Cambodia are able to pay for that. Another reason I think is because the economy has developed to a point where we have a standard of living available that can meet international expectations. So now in Phnom Penh, for example, if you're coming from Singapore, if you're coming from Lumpur, I think you can find something here, a life experience that is a high, high enough quality that you wouldn't feel like a fish out of water. Whereas before we were very much, uh, you know, a dusty town. You know, when I first came, there was one, one skyscraper in Cambodia or one, one building. So, so it was a very different living environment then. So now we're seeing more professionals coming in. We're seeing bigger companies here because local companies have also grown a lot. So we have some very large business groups, including the one that I work for, that have complex operations that require professional management as opposed to entrepreneurial management. I think, you know, early on when a business is, is started, you know, you have the, the bootstrap entrepreneur who can have his hands or her hands on every aspect of the business, right? That's, that's one of the fun things about being an entrepreneur, right? Is that you can have your, you can know about every aspect of your business. But of course, as that company grows and becomes huge, you need professional managers to manage these because you start to become a little bit silent. I mean, your finance department needs to be spot on and it needs to be five people. It needs to be managed by someone who is a professional finance manager. You can't just, you know, be doing it on, on your Excel spreadsheet anymore. So as we've seen the economy develop, over these years, we've seen more specialization come into the market, meaning more professionals. And, and I think that that is welcomed by a lot of Cambodians as well. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned about finance, agriculture, real estate. What other sectors are you, are you seeing a, a renewed sort of momentum? And sort of would you say kind of these next sectors that people are coming in and working in these spaces? seen here from the government and <clears throat> from policymakers is that this transition from a garment-based economy to a light manufacturing base, right? For doing more things like electric electronics assembly, for doing things like automobile. And I think that's happening much which which is great. I you know we see we see some big some companies some big companies making big investments like Mini Bear for example is is a Japanese company that does small parts in consumer electronics you probably own something that has one of their parts in it if you're from a western market and that those, they're expanding their operations here in cambodia so that's that's pretty incredible i think they'll be touching a total investment of nearly a billion dollars in the next few years into their factories here which is incredible we've seen manufacturing plan for ford be set up recently toyota we see expansion of Denso as well, which is another Japanese company and of some harness manufacturers for automotive. So I think Cambodia working towards that transition. And I think in that manufacturing space, Cambodia has a lot to offer because Cambodian workers are actually very good at learning. And because of that positive attitude is what it's been attributed to. And I certainly buy into that, that idea that Cambodians love to learn. I think in general, you know, it's, it's common to see, you know, your workers in your office there, they're getting their second bachelor's degree, they're getting their master's degree, they're learning, you know, their third or fourth language, you know, I, I see this, this, this hunger in the young population here to, to learn and it makes them very adaptable to new kinds of work. In, there's an American company out here, L'Oreal Diamonds, which polishes for Tiffany, right? And that's one of Cambodia's big success stories. Well. My understanding it's their biggest facility is here in Cambodia for diamond polishing. And they attribute that to the fact that Cambodians are very good at learning how to do this. I mean, nobody knew how to polish diamonds in Cambodia, right? Or very few people, right? But they were able to train this, this huge cadre of workers to, to polish diamonds because, because of that, that willingness to, to learn and do a good job. So that natural resource, to go back to our earlier discussion that we have, is our youth. And that is going to be leveraged more for manufacturing, higher value forms of manufacturing in the years to come, and also in the tech sector. So I think that we are in the very early stages of seeing a access of Cambodian talent to the global talent pool of tech workers. 
Why did I say very early? Because certifications are still new in Cambodia, like the global certifications in, in the different programming languages and the different systems. But as that is being built, and it is being actively built right now, I think we'll see those youth also accessing that global market for labor in the tech sector, which, which would be a great thing for Cambodia also. Great. Yeah. Th thank you for sort of setting that stage on the current state of some of these key sectors. Uh, we now just wanted to dive into some of this, this kind of really interesting part of the book where you talk about th this journey of some of the foreign entrepreneurs, investors, managers coming in. What would you say are the most common pitfalls for, for a foreigner when, when they first arrive in Cambodia? Right. So one is expecting that Cambodia will operate the way that your country does and that it should operate the way your country does. So one of the negative cycles I see foreigners who come to Cambodia fall into is this, it shouldn't be that way, it should be this way kind of mentality, right? And it's really like spinning your wheels in mud, right? It, it doesn't get you anywhere. It doesn't help you to operate better in Cambodia, which is your goal. Your goal is to be successful here. So I think coming here and expecting you know, whether it's government systems, whether it's the way that your staff respond to you, expecting them to conform to your standards right away. And when they don't, becoming frustrated with that is a kind of negativity you need to really avoid. And you need to be on the lookout for it because we're all susceptible to it. I think it's human nature. I, I fall into that even today at times, right? But but I think we need to identify that and you need to nip it in the bud and, and not not give it credence and not not be around not surround yourself with people who, who just reinforce that for you i think is is also important so that that would be one of the the most common pitfalls that i see is expecting things to be the way that they were back home and being frustrated when they're not another one is foreigners overestimating their ability to contribute in the system right so one effect of underestimating this system here in Cambodia, thinking that there is no system, and so thereby underestimating it, is thinking that you can do more here than, than you can, right? Because you know a lot and they know a little. So I think that that comes from a place of not understanding the system, looking out and seeing complete chaos and thinking that there's no, no order at all and thinking you can help to bring order. So I think that needs to be avoided. The other, which is, which is less, hubris and and just more i think which comes from a place of goodwill is trying to manage cambodian employees the way that you would manage your employees back home and what i mean by that is giving high degree of autonomy very early in a way that we would i think back home out of out of respect for that person's professionalism i think that when you're introducing new concepts to somebody who doesn't know that working system that you're coming from, that that leaves them out on a limb. And I know that's not what you're trying to do in that, in that situation as a manager, right? We're, we're taught you need to give people a lot of autonomy in their job and you need to not micromanage them and all those things. But when you're coming in with a set of expectations that that employee doesn't understand because you're coming from another system, which they never grew up in, right? They don't know what you're talking about. That that just sets up a, a situation where they're not going to do what you want them to do, right? Because they don't know what you want them to do, honestly, even, even if they say yes, you know, and, and, and so you're going to be really upset and they're going to be really, you know, unhappy in their job too, because they're not meeting your expectations. So those are, those are the, the, the biggest pitfalls that I see here. Although there's many, as you see in the book, <laughs> many. Yeah, that, that's a good segue into our next topic. You, you just mentioned about managing, you know, as a foreigner coming in and being a manager of Cambodian employees. What what would you say are some of the key sort of bits of advice you'd give that could be unique to, to this region or, or Cambodia in order to be aware of kind of day one as a manager here? Yeah, so I think you're going to need to allocate more time than you would back home. So if you, you expect that you're going to hire somebody into a position that you wrote a very good job description for and you interviewed them and it seems, it seems like a good fit, I would, I would say that you, you are going to need to work with that person more than, than you think you will to align your expectations together, right? So they know exactly what you're looking for. If you take the time to do that, 
you are going to get results if you hired the right person, right? I would always say that attitude is is the most is the most important factor to look for. You know, somebody's character, right? Their honesty and their and their willingness to learn and to put forth effort in doing what they're doing, right? So if you hire that person, that right person, you're going to need to spend a lot more time with them, which means you're probably going to grow your team slower than you thought you were if you're if you're referencing how you would do it back home. The other thing is that technical skills are probably at a lower level than they are back home in a lot of cases, which which again is going to take more training to get on board. The other thing you can't do with local employees is you can't be a tyrant and expect to get good results, right? So sometimes we could misunderstand that because Cambodian managers are able to do that, that we can do that. But there's an issue of personal pride and a, and a kind of humiliation that comes from being berated in a certain way by a foreigner that is not the case when it happens from a Cambodian, right? And we have to understand that. There's, there's cultural uh, reasons for that, historical reasons for that. And, and so, you know, when you're coming to a, a former colony, when you're coming to a, a country that has gone through a civil war and things like that, we have, we have a certain perspective here. So you shouldn't just look to Cambodian managers and say, do what they do, because you can't get away with the same things that they can get away with. And, and it shouldn't be, you shouldn't be looking for the same tools. The tools that I found to be most successful here are finding very good incentives for employees. So the incentives are not always money, actually. The incentives can be mentorship, spending time with employees to help them to grow and learn. Especially now, I find that in, in the professional class of young employees, they, they want most, mo what they want most is opportunity to learn and to grow their skills. And so if you can continue to offer them that, they will continue to try to put out good results for you. And then the other is communication and respect. So when something doesn't go right, of course, the way we handle that is, is really important. I would say firstly, to handle that privately in most cases, there's a, there, you want to avoid that humiliation that comes from being, being berated in front of a group of your peers by your supervisor, if you can, and, and, and then give honest feedback and look for ways to make that constructive. The other thing you're probably going to have to do is be tougher. And so I just, I just said you can't berate people publicly, right? But that doesn't mean there, there can't be consequences. And you need to make sure that those consequences are evenly applied. Do things like written counselings, verbal counsellings for performance-related issues. And don't let a lot of things slip. Because as soon as you do, that will be taken advantage of very quickly here. I think that's true always for leadership, but it's particularly true in Cambodia where maybe the standards for professional conduct aren't fully integrated because the economy hasn't been formalized very long. So we don't have the, maybe the same social norms in the workplace. The last bit of advice I would give is always follow up. You need to set very clear expectations, like I want a report done at this time, or I want this done to this standard of cleaning at this time, or whatever the case is. And you need to follow up. You can't expect that just because you set the standard that, that people will achieve it until you prove that you're going to follow up and check on them, <laughs> that it's not, not, not a safe bet for you. Right? So that follow through is part of, again, professionalism. And it's something that is yet to fully develop, I think, in the workforce. So training your staff that that follow through is important and then teaching them through you checking up that it will you know, be important for their work and career future is, is something that I recommend doing. Okay, yeah, that, that's really useful advice, especially for the, you know, in, in relation to the private sector. We also wanted to touch on this, you know, this concept of some people that come to Cambodia thinking they, can, they want to fix things, right? And that can sometimes be a mindset that's more common in maybe the NGO sector. And we're just wondering like how this kind of savior narrative has, has kind of evolved as time has gone on in Cambodia. Yeah, thankfully, thankfully we see less of that, I think, and, and more of people instead looking at, you know, opportunities instead of it, which is a more positive way to think about that, to look for, 
you know, to, to take advantage of opportunities to grow things, right? And I think that that, that is a, a positive way to, to have the same idea when you see a problem, right? But yes, people coming to Cambodia and thinking that uh, Cambodia needs them to fix things has been a problem for a long time. You know, Cambodia's economy was very dominated, I would say, by NGOs for a long time during the reconstruction period. And NGOs did a lot of good work here in that period, and they, and they continue to do a lot of good work here. But I think that the focus that's come now to business has been what's improved the livelihoods for most Cambodians. And, and I'm very happy to see that that part of the economy is growing because that's what's sustainable, right, is, is the business side. Okay. Yeah. Another topic we wanted to touch on was how business decision making has gone about here and how primarily in many circumstances, it's mostly driven by feelings as opposed to, let's say, data, objective data. And, you know, how are you seeing that kind of evolve as time has gone on? And uh, yeah. And is that also, I presume, another common pitfall that, that people fall into where you're trying to persuade partners with data and, and realizing quite quickly that, you know, you're better off to really just invest in that emotional relationship. That's right. And, you know, there's a very logical reason for that. So we, we kind of have this narrative that data, data-driven decision-making is the right kind of decision-making because it's objective. And I think when we dig deeper, a lot of us see, well, you know, it really depends on what the data is, how valid is that data. And it's really hard to... to to know that even in our economies, which are very developed and we actually have very good data. Now, the, the reason it's completely logical for the Cambodians to do, to use more emotional decision-making is because there is this lack of data in the market, right? So when you have ambiguity, when you have a vacuum in terms of the, the information that you can get, that would be those data points whether it be you know, total market size for a certain sector or consumer spending in a certain area or for that indicator, those data points you're looking for, you're, you may not find the ones in Cambodia because we still have such an informal-based economy here, right? which is a lot of family, small family-run businesses. We have a lot of informal, informal employment because of that. <clears throat> it can be very hard to get those economic indicators <clears throat> excuse me, that you're looking for, or, <clears throat> excuse me, or the business data that you're looking for, right? So you have to find another way to make decisions, right? Because you need to make decisions. <laughs> so the way that you can do that is try to get the impressions of many people that you trust, right? That's one form of data, right? So that's qualitative data that you're getting. And, and you're, you, know, you have your network of business people that you know are out there doing good things and, and you, can, you can ping them for what's your perspective on you know, this area of the city? You know, what's your perspective on you know, this, this kind of farming in this area? Do you, know, you think it's good? It's good for that because maybe you don't have very good agricultural data or weather data for that area or whatever it is. You know, those are just examples. I don't but so, so it, it makes perfect sense that you would rely on your peer network, right? And a network of trusted people who do have their you know, feet in the sand or in the dirt doing things in their different businesses to give you that input. And, and your trust of, of that person's information is based on your feelings, right? Is this person a trustworthy person or not? That's an evaluation you make. And your body's feedback mechanism for that is a feeling, right? This guy gives me a feeling that I trust him, right? So it makes complete sense that in this, you know, post-war economy where, you know, which we're actually past the post-war economy at this point, right? We're, we're in a new modern economic phase here in Cambodia that's incredible. But in this environment where all the entrepreneurs here grew up in this post-war environment, right? They had to make decisions in a completely ambiguous environment with very little access to what we would call data. And so they had to rely on each other and, and they had to rely on their relationships. And so that continues to be how a lot of senior leaders make decisions because that's what made them successful here. Now with the generational change that's coming and, and there is a generational change underway here in Cambodia right now where the, a lot of the founders of these business groups are starting to retire, right? And their children are starting to take over and their children are in their late 30s, early 40s. 
a lot of them were educated in the United States, UK, Australia, and they went through business schools that focused on looking for data and doing market surveys and doing things that we would typically do as part of our due diligence on, on opportunities. And so they place some value in that. And, and because of that, we've seen things like Mekong Strategic Partners be set up and different, different groups right, that are out there now who are operating in the PEVC space and are able, able to do that here in Cambodia because people are starting to believe in that kind of decision making. So there is a, there is a shift happening right now. And it's, and it's happening with, with the new generation which is coinciding with more formal economy, right? So we see business registrations in Cambodia going way up. We see tax revenue going up. So that these are all ways that more data are coming into the system. Also with the, the, the high level of digital inclusion, now we see a lot of people are banked now that weren't banked before because of some of the banking apps and things that are available. So all of this is feeding a system that I think in the next 10 years will be less emotional and more hard data, if you will, or, or, or quantitative data-based decision-making. Great. And yeah, that that builds on into our, our next topic that we wanted to touch on. And it is this concept of just building relationships. And I think when, you know, as a foreigner, when you when you meet a local, a possible local partner and you say, oh, you know, I've, I've been to this university and I have this work experience, that doesn't necessarily matter as much from, you know, from from reading your book. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really just these more informal understandings of who you are and, and who the people you surround yourself with that will, will make you kind of, you know, a, a sort of a credible person with a good reputation. So I just wondered, like, how, if you could touch on that a little bit, that topic, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So along the same lines of, of what we were just talking about, right? <clears throat> a lot of these older entrepreneurs or older business builders here who are now in, in charge of these huge business groups or they're, they're really important business people here in different sectors. They saw waves of foreigners coming to Cambodia who were overstating their qualifications, right? Reinventing themselves, if you will, when they came to Cambodia. So, so, and, and promising things that they couldn't deliver. So they had experiences uh, many, many experiences. And, and I talk to these business leaders now here who are, you know, quite cynical about foreign, foreign labor because they've had these experiences where, you know, they've come in and said they could do, you know, amazing things with you know, growth of a, of a bank and then they weren't able to do anything at all. They had no real network or, you know, stories where they, they claimed to be, you know, a finance whiz, and then they, they, they weren't able to even do basic things in, inside the finance departments. And so we, we, have, we have so many of these stories, they have so many of these stories accumulated that, that they are very skeptical now when they see a foreigner state their qualifications. And the second part of that puzzle is that they did not grow up in our economy. So when you say you work for Goldman Sachs, for example, <clears throat> it's a big name, that's incredible, right? They may or may not know that name, right? And they may, even if they know it, it's a very abstract thing. It's not, it's not something that they would care a lot about because it doesn't mean because you worked for them in New York that you can do anything here. That's the, that's the other factor, right? One thing I hear a lot from local business people who come to me and ask me, you know, how they can improve their business or professionalize their business. One concern they vocalized to me, which I didn't even put in the book, which would be in the next version, that they, that they actually vocalized to me is, I'm worried that if I hire a foreign manager to come in, they'll be very good at their job technically, but they won't be able to cope with Cambodia, right? So that, that's another, another concern that they have is that, you know, foreigners can come in and become paralyzed by by the interface of the business with the with the Cambodian environment, right? When things aren't exactly how they think they should be. And so these experiences have built up. Yeah. Have you personally ever had to deal with an experience in that scenario where if you have a foreigner that comes to work for you and maybe experiences a bit of that paralysis in a sense, how is it that you would work with someone to be able to either kind of help them through the process of understanding or what it would be your approach? Yeah, so I've, I've seen multiple implosions, I'll call it here, where, where they've, they've, you know, 
typically won't last a year, a full year, and, and leave Cambodia and, you know, leave really sour because they get in that negative cycle, right? They get in that negative cycle of, that I was mentioning earlier, of it's not how it should be, it should be different, why are they this way, instead of trying to understand the parameters of their environment, how to work within their environment, right? It's like, you know, you know wishing something was different doesn't, doesn't, doesn't help you very much, right? So how do I help people through that? The first thing is to try to, to, to have them accept their situation, right? Is, is acceptance is the first step, right? To say, okay, you're here and Cambodia is the way that it is. Now let's, let's figure out how you can work within this environment. And, and you know what, if you can't, that's okay. It's probably time to move on, but let's not, let's not make that a hard process for Cambodia or for you, right? And being on the hiring side, and I'm sure working with you know, plenty of other business leaders that are on the hiring side too, what are some of the immediate red flags, maybe from a first discussion, that you might take notice and and kind of assessing that that individual maybe bring him on. You know, I I think it's important for people to have experience in the region. I think it's if they're if they're coming in for a very senior position like a CEO position, right? They they need to have worked in Asia before and Southeast Asia preferably, right? If they're coming in as as a senior manager, if they're if they're coming in a bit a bit younger, I think you you can take a you can take more of a chance. But for, for me, that experience level in a developing economy is also one of those things that I would, I would point to. You know, have they worked in a, a country that doesn't have very good systems so do they, or good institutions? So do they, they understand what it's like to work in that kind of environment? And how do they speak about that experience? Equally important, right? Are they like, well, that place is completely, you know, completely a mess. There's no hope for that place. Well, I've heard that. I've heard that before too. And so it's like an attitude based thing, right? So for me, the red flags are, you know, do they spend all their time whinging about their last, last experience or, or, you know, do they, do they have something positive to, to look at even in, in a difficult economy? And I think that that's probably true for a hiring process, just for anybody talking about their past job, right? <laughs> Yeah, it's very true. And also the post first meeting, being able to do some due diligence on the back end, making sure that maybe some of the things that were discussed in that first conversation are validated as well. There can be times where someone can come into a new a country and reinvent themselves. And, you know, in some cases that can be a bit of twisting the story in some aspects, but for the most part, it's giving people the benefit of the doubt while still being cautiously optimistic on the back end of it. And in kind of in the in, in turn of that and bringing things full circle and looking at how really relationship building is one of the aspects of getting to not only understand the culture better, understand the business environment better. And so that takes building credibility. And so from your perspective, what are some of the ways that a new person to business that wants to establish a business in Cambodia can be able to build that credibility over the long term? Yeah. So in Cambodia, community is very important, right? And your ability to be a member of the community is important. So whatever your sector is, there's probably organizations around your sector, right? Where your sector gets together, whether it's banking, whether it's agriculture, whatever the case is. And there's probably opportunities there to volunteer, to work on projects that, that advance the goals of the sector or to work on charity work and things. Cambodians really appreciate when people are part of the community. So I say that a step to building your credibility is to firstly show up at those things and become known, right? So, so people know you over time. <clears throat> so it's important that people have an opportunity to talk to you, that you're genuine, that you're not, you know, you're not trying to push something on them, <laughs> right? That you, you have, you're interested in what they're doing, the same things that are just about being decent, right? And, and, and you, you get that face time with people. And then the next thing I would say is that you, you should look to volunteer some of your time to something that helps the community, whether it's helping to plan an event, to do a charity work, to do something, right? And it should have, you should have a meaningful contribution, not just a talking contribution. So what does that mean? It means getting your hands dirty. So if it's, if it's a charity event, that's, that's, that's like a city cleanup. It means going up and picking up, tra picking up trash with people, right? Picking up the trash, or it could be if it's event organizing, you know, 
be part of the core committee that's actually doing the work to reach out to sponsors and actually get sponsors. Take an active role in doing and showing that you can do stuff, not just talk. So that's your first step in building credibility. And then from there, if you keep your eyes open for opportunities, you'll probably see somewhere you can take the initiative, right? So if you're first coming, of course, you want to tag onto other people's initiatives. But then after a while, if you're an entrepreneurial person and you keep your eyes open, you'll see opportunities to take the initiative yourself and start something. The key when you do that is to make it a win for as many people as possible, right? So bring other members of the community in to what you're doing and share the, the credit, share the, or share the benefit. If the benefit is, you know, having some more customers, maybe, maybe it's a semi-commercial thing you're doing, maybe you're putting together a, a diner club, you know, well, get your restaurant friends together so that, you know, you go to their restaurant once a month or whatever the case may be. I'm saying share, share in whatever that benefit is with others and that will be appreciated too. And so that's how you can build your community, build your credibility here. In Cambodia, people want to see you do things. They want to see you accomplish things in the community and, and they, will, they will give you credit over time for those things. And maybe just looking at it from the other side too, how easy is it for you to lose credibility and how forgiving can the community be on the other end in terms of being able to build back up that credibility? Yeah, I think it depends on the way you lose credibility. So, so I think, you know, personal character is always the hardest to rebuild. I don't think that's the case here any more than anywhere else, but it's a small town. And so that can be different than it is other places. Whereas in you know, London or New York or something, maybe you could, you could slide under the radar. Here, your, your failure is probably gonna be public and, and, so, and everyone's gonna know about it. So you should be pretty careful, I think, to manage expectations when you're doing things and not speak about things bigger than what you can accomplish it is important and you can lose credibility fast, yeah, as you said. Understood. And, you know, and thank you for, for going through all those topics and, and discussion points as well. It was really great to learn more about your perspective from, from Essential Cambodia. And so into this next section, the last part of the interview, we want to talk about a couple of interpersonal questions that we have for you. And I, I find it always interesting whenever talking to leaders about their perspective about the world, maybe different than a lot of people as well. What do people misunderstand about you the most? People give me the impression that they think that I go after power. I think I mentioned it earlier, that I'm interested in, in having power for power's sake. And I can say that in everything that I do and pursue, I'm normally pursuing it out of interest and curiosity. <laughs> and, that, and that often, and, and, and like a passion for doing it, right? Because I also hate to be bored, right? And then, and so it turns out that those things lead to being in positions of leadership and having power. But I am definitely not, if you put a group exercise together, they're like, who's gonna be in charge of this group? I would not be the first guy to raise my hand, right? <laughs> so, but it just ends up being that way because you end up doing things. And when you end up doing things and building things, you end up in that position where you are in charge of things. Right. And so I think a, a misconception is that it works the other way around, that you look to be in charge of things. And so you end up in charge of things and people can have that impression about me, whereas I very rarely look to be in charge of anything. <laughs> Just ends up. Understood. Yeah. And so in, or, in, in terms of doing and, and being, you know, that, that kind of individual who who just never wants to be bored, who always wants to be constantly moving from one thing to the next. What are some of your daily recurring habits that keep you staying consistent or disciplined in that aspect? Yeah, so one is really respecting my own time. So I'm very strict with my time in that I make sure that I have time to think. I even schedule it for, for, for times, right? So if I, need to, if I need time to think about something that's important that's coming up, I will actually put it on my agenda that this block is to think about this. Now, I may come to that time, I might not be in the mood, but, but at least the intention is there, right? The other thing is I try to stick to my schedule, right? If I try only to have meetings for breakfast 
and meetings for dinner. If I can avoid lunch meetings, I do because it's better for me to exercise at that time. Now, everyone's different. and Sometimes people like to exercise after work, but I think exercise is a key part of my routine. I would say nutrition is another key part of my, my routine, not to eat very much during my mentally functioning periods of time because I know that it'll just drag me right down and my brain will not work very well. For example, if I have a pizza at lunch, so I try not to eat very much during the day, not just so I don't, you know, gain weight, but also so I can think. So I put a lot of effort into trying to optimize my, my thinking because I can feel when my brain is sluggish and I can feel when I'm not on it. And, and I, and if the more things that you take on, the less you can afford to be in that space. And your health is also really important. So I will not do heavy night of drinking if I can't afford it. That's one thing that I think has come with age, right? Is I, I really put my foot down when it comes to that. You know, I'll have one drink with somebody after work. But, you know, on, on a work day, on a weekday, things I got going on, it's not going to go past that. There's no amount of, you know, peer pressure or social situation that's going to get that to happen. So I think, I think that's really important to take care of your health and take care of your brain. Gosh, the, uh, the hangovers hit harder every day that you get older, right? <laughs> I, it's funny, Max and I were actually talking prior to this conversation about having that balance between knowing yourself on both your mental as well as like your physical body. And if you aren't able to get enough sleep and balance that with the right nutrition and you know maybe you are overextending yourself and not scheduling it in a way it can really be a drag down on how you perform and maybe how you act around others too and you know i i personally i I get a little bit cranky when i don't eat so it's uh, so i'm actually on the opposite end of i can't think if i don't eat but but yeah it's yeah it's interesting how everybody's different in that aspect i don't want to advocate not eating i eat i just eat Right. Dinner, right, which is they say you're not supposed to do that. But I, I, what I mean is like I like eat an apple, graze on nuts and fruits and things throughout the day, right? But I try not to hit that big carb load during the day, right? Right. That'll save for dinner. <laughs> right, right. Save that for dinner. Have a great night's sleep, and then wake up ready to hit the day. So, cool. And so for for you as well, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've come across tons of podcasts you you spoke previously as well in, in a meeting before with us that that you're an avid podcast listener on whenever you do workouts or you know whenever you have the free time you know what is the most formative podcast or book e- either or that you feel like has had a lot of influence towards you whether that's business or personal yeah so i would say you know how i built this with guy Roz is one of those podcasts that i think most entrepreneurs can identify with 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 what what they the stories that they tell on there and that's incredible and it's given me a lot of perspective on different businesses and different journeys that people go on so that's like a business journey based podcast and the other one i would say is dan carlin's hardcore history right that that is an incredible work that he compiles there and if you if you're like to have a historical perspective things which i find actually helps me a lot in building my thinking systems i i I would recommend that as well and one more since you said i I let's do a lot of them is melvin bragg's in our time right which is a a bbc podcast and i I just find that an incredible resource if you didn't get a classical education i'm from the united states we don't do that generally speaking that is really filled in a lot of gaps great and if you could have coffee with anyone living or dead who would it be and why yeah you know i thought a lot about that and and i realized that a lot of the people that i would like to meet i wouldn't want to have coffee with so i don't know how how much this is about coffee and how much this is about just meeting meeting your idol right but but i came to the conclusion that i think i would like to meet sir isaac newton right because his book or or the books that i've read on his life uh, are so he said he was such an incredible person, such fundamentally a different way of thinking than everyone of his time that I think he would be amazing to meet, but I'm not sure he would be amazing to talk to over coffee. <laughs> he, might, well, he might not say a lot to me or think that I was worth talking to. So <laughs> It'd be more of an observation then, just to see how he walks about the world. <laughs> yeah, that, that would be really cool. 
And our, our traditional closing question that we like to ask each of our guests is, what's the greatest piece of advice that you've ever been given? So just to always be curious. I think that's the best advice I got when I was younger is to stay curious and ask questions because I think that's led me everywhere that I've gone has been because I was curious, I was interested and I wanted to know more. So I followed that up and it just led me down this crazy path to where I am now. We just want to thank you again now for taking the time to speak with us to come on to Rising Giants and we'll be sure to link the book Essential Cambodia into the show notes as well and look forward to having the episode released very soon. So thank you. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you very much, Alan.